0: Hi everyone, my name is Karen Lee, and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives. Welcome back, everyone. For our returning listeners, I'm sure you all know by now that I am always excited to share every episode we have here on our podcast. But today, I am particularly thrilled to introduce this episode with Dr. John Pache, a long-standing international civil servant in human rights for the United Nations. I had the pleasure to be in conversation with him as he shared about his experience in the field while also introducing us to his newly published book, The United Nations Commission on Human Rights, A Very Great Enterprise. We spoke on the importance of civil society in the role of human rights, protection, and engagement, the role of multilateralism in this field, and much, much more. I definitely learned so much, and I hope you all feel the same. So let's go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next page. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. John Pache, former secretary to the Commission on Human Rights and the former coordinator of the Vienna World Conference on Human Rights, and also is presently a newly published author. Hi, John. How are you?
1: I'm very well, Karen. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to have you, and I'm so glad to have this opportunity to meet with you in person, of course, while safely social distanced. And I am really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you. So I know I briefly introduced you in the beginning, but please, would you be so kind to tell us a little bit more about yourself, because I know you have accomplished much, much more than what I mentioned.
1: Well, um, I actually have been very fortunate because... I never really thought of joining the UN, but in 1965 I uh, was selected to take part in an internship program in New York in the legal office. And when that was over, the uh, Division of Human Rights was looking for a couple of junior officers to help with the work that the Subcommission on Human Rights was doing on administration of justice. So I applied and uh, was offered a probationary contract uh, to work on that project and uh, that probationary contract was eventually renewed turned into a permanent contract and lasted for 33 years never intended this to happen that way <laughs> and uh, during that time there was a quite a uh, quite an evolution going on in the human rights program uh, so I kind of found myself, together with a few other colleagues, responsible for developing and adapting the various treaties and programs. And then when it was realized uh, that um, the programs should be better known, the program drifted into education, human rights education. And there again, I had the good fortune of being designated responsible for the development of human rights education programs. So all this basically through a series of, if you like, um, fortunate developments.
0: Serendipitous developments.
1: Correct, (laughs) correct. And uh, and then when in 1989 it was felt uh, this was the time of perestroika and the shift in international relations, it was found politically possible to convene a World Conference on Human Rights in order to basically redraft the human rights agenda. And there again, I was privileged to be put as the coordinator of the conference. So I spent two years and a half of my life running meetings all over the world, and in Vienna in particular, which produced the program that we know today. In fact, the High Commissioner was established in December '93, after about 50 years of attempted proposals to have something like that. And then it went on, you know, uh, and still goes on now. At the moment, we can address that a little later, but you you see how things led one to the other to the other. And I happen to be with some others, at least, fortunate enough to given these responsibilities. And now here I am.
0: (laughs) And here you are. And it makes sense that 33 years just flew by.
1: Oh, yes, very much. Yes, very much. Yes.
0: So you recently wrote a book, like we mentioned, entitled The United Nations Commission on Human Rights, A Very Great Enterprise. And it was actually published just a few weeks ago. And I think... Just in your introduction alone, we can kind of guess what this book might be about and what this book tells the story of. So it goes without saying that you've had extensive experience working in the field of human rights, as we all heard. Uh, But it's a completely different story to translate your work into writing. And so what motivated you to write this book? And were there any key themes that you knew that had to be included, especially within such a rich history of the United Nations human
1: rights? Very good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the immediate reason was because after I left the UN in 99 on my 60th birthday, I um, went uh, into teaching and writing and then eventually into taking Uh, assignments from various agencies including the high commissioner in various parts of the world which required involvement in training not only of students but also of specialized bodies like police like military and so on and through that process uh, in 2014 I realized that there was no such work existing I had to kind of rely on my own system which was a system of chronologies, what I used to call quick crons, to explain to the students what had happened up to then, because it was essential if they were going to identify with all these conventions and procedures, that they have an idea of what happened and when and how it evolved. And I remember distinctly the immediate program that I have in mind was one in November 2014, when I was running a course in Nepal, in, in Kathmandu, uh, for young people from Southeast Asia, who were brilliant and had a lot of work to do in their own individual countries and region, and who would have benefited enormously from having all this in one in one volume, so I set about uh, preparing this, and this uh, that's what this volume is. What was the result?
0: It is a pretty dense book, but I can understand just how much history and how rich it must be. And it's amazing that you had, you know, not just your students, but just civil society, members of civil society in mind when writing this.
1: Well, uh, that's very true. Um, If you read bits and pieces I have written and spoken, especially in recent years, uh, the focus has been on the need for strengthening civil society's voice in the Human Rights Council. Luckily, those monitoring bodies of the treaties have widened their interface with the civil society, but not the council. The council has regrettably um, limited the input and the importance of the civil society input into its work. The book itself, uh, and I must here take two seconds to pay tribute to Oxford University Press, because to handle such a huge volume, <laughs> uh, it needed a very thorough process. And their editors, this thing was edited about three times and by various people just to make sure that of consistency and, uh, and clarity. So uh, after I finished the text, which was about 1,200 pages, I had to revise and to make sure that I did not lose the scope of the book. And that meant that I had to keep a chronological approach from 1946 until now, 2019, within that process, chronological process, starting from 46 and going on, to reflect the, what happened during various times. And that's why the book has certain dedicated chapters, like, for example, on economic and social and cultural rights and so on. And as a result, I hope that I have achieved my objective in making available to anybody who is even liminally interested to inform themselves on any subject that they like, uh, whether it is the child, torture, Mm -hmm. women, indigenous, nationality issues, if you like, anything that has been covered by the Commission and the Council over the years.
0: It's all in your book.
1: It's all in the book. It's all in the book. book. And even though it looks imposing because it's rather (laughs) big, but in reality it is very manageable. Oh
0: yes, I agree. I've read excerpts, i read portions of the book and as someone who doesn't have much background in such knowledge, it was very easy to understand, clear and very, very interesting.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So maybe we should talked about this before, but the title, the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, a very great enterprise, really piqued my interest. And a very great enterprise. These were the words spoken by the then UN Assistant Secretary General, Henri Logier, at the meeting that marked the beginnings of the UN Commission on Human Rights. And so what significance do these words hold to the UN, but more specifically, the Commission on Human Rights?
1: I think it is um, key because here was the United Nations being physically established and Henri Logier convened nine people in April '46 and started a very short speech which actually is reproduced in extenso in the book because it's very significant where he said, literally, ladies and gentlemen we are gathered here today at the beginning of a very great enterprise. <laughs> the commission did not exist then uh, but the, uh, the charter had specified that there should be a commission on human rights. And incidentally, it's also important to recall that the wording of the Charter, which pre, which foresees a commission on human rights, was added into the draft of the Charter by the four major powers of the time on the insistence of civil society. Because the Charter, as it came out of the Dumbarton-Oaks conversations, the war had not ended, the Second World War had not ended. The four major powers, which were at that time the uh, USSR, USA, UK, and China, proposed the word that became the seed for this great enterprise to take off. And I tried to create a homogeneous vision of this organ that was conceptualized in April 46, if you like, to today. In fact, the last chapter is entitled The Future of the Great Enterprise." And the book makes proposals of how the great enterprise should be. And if you look at the table of contents, most of the chapters follow this great enterprise. Like, for example, the, ent- the great enterprise enters the modern era. That was 1987, when the program changed radically by the introduction of extra-budgetary support. Because one of the biggest drawbacks of the human rights program was and is the shortage of resources in order to support and maintain the programs that it has. You know, now OHCHR has offices in many countries. Most of the Security Council operations have a human rights officer or office, and that costs money.
0: Very true. Yes, 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 yes. So we see that this the term or the words "a very great enterprise," although spoken in forty six, have almost a, a timeless kind of
1: absolutely. characteristic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one hundred percent spot mm-hmm.
0: on. And it's really interesting to see um, in your writing. Not only the history behind those words, but like you said in the last chapter, your vision for the future of those words.
1: Based on the experience we've made up to now.
0: Exactly. Right. So actually, before we move on, I wanted to ask this question just for our listeners. How would you define, in your terms and in the way that you speak, civil society?
1: Well, civil society is essentially characterized by it being not governmental, Governments have a range of institutions. Some of them are fully statal, governmental. Others are parastatal. So there's a range of institutions. Civil society covers, in the case of this subject, human rights organizations, academic institutions, non-governmental bodies in general, if you like. Especially if you include into the formula the uh, priority to be given to economic, social, and cultural rights alongside civil and political rights, you bring in quite a wide range of non-governmental institutions, including uh, business, if you like, but that is a very particular category. But it's very important to be truly universal, not to omit any section, any sector, because if you do that, then you let in the negative influences You can't afford to keep any sector out if you're going to be universal as you have to be. Otherwise, you cannot have international human rights standards.
0: Right. Thank you for that. So continuing on, we touched upon just how important the role of civil society is within the fabric of human rights. And I think it's interesting because in previous interviews, you speak of this and not only the importance, but in fact, the necessity of civil society's participation in human rights. And in fact, you say that the inclusion of human rights in the United Nations Charter was actually the result of pressure from civil society. And so could you share more on this? I think it's really interesting to hear about multilateralism in this kind of perspective, not just thinking about big states and big powers, but civil society and individual actors.
1: Well, civil society is an integral part of the human rights process. If you look at the history of it, you will find that most of the main conventions that the, on human rights, there are nine conventions, main ones, because they are called core conventions, because they have a mechanism that enables them to be monitored. There are other conventions which do not have that mechanism. They are not core conventions. Civil society played a determinant role. In some cases, they actually submitted the drafts of these conventions. And during the process of drafting, of negotiation civil society played a very important role. Government delegations relied, in many cases, on the input of the specialists in civil society. And as you know, civil society covers a very wide range of institutions. You know, you have like, like Amnesty International, like Human Rights Watch, and then a lot of regional and local ones, who are the interface with the ground, with the reality And that is something that we learned from the process of uh, the Vienna Conference, the World Conference, where we had regional meetings. In Asia, for example, the regional meeting that took place in Bangkok in January, I think, 1993, was the first ever intergovernmental meeting by governments from Asia on human rights. And in parallel to that regional meeting, you had a, a very, very impressive NGO forum that even within the civil society sector, presented new priorities that shook the existing civil society profile. For example, they put a lot of emphasis on economic and social and cultural rights because this was a region where these were considered to be very important. And also, they actually devised the formula between universality and nationalism, the so-called cultural relativism, because many, or a number, not many, a number of governments from the Asian region felt that human rights was a Western idea, uh, Judeo-Christian in concept, and therefore they could not be applied in the same way in the region. And it was in Bangkok that the formula was found, between universality of human rights, which still is today uh, an essential feature, and the respect for culture and religion and particularities in the various societies. So the regional uh, meetings, including the civil society meetings and the governmental meetings, produced a very important outcome that still today is is influencing the, the program. But we'll come to today when it's convenient for you.
0: Yes. No, I think it's very true. The topic of human rights um, is interesting because oftentimes if governments don't act, it is the people, it is the civil society that are voicing their opinions are trying to make their governments act and notice.
1: Absolutely.
0: So it is such an integral part to have civil society not only heard within this fabric of human rights, but really play a key part in making it possible and making it a reality.
1: In the introduction to my book, I make it clear that I tried my best in my book to avoid characterizations like good or bad Mm. uh, or improvement or disappointment because I feel that the reader has to form his or her impressions because I would like the reader to understand that human rights is not a beauty contest. It's not about the nasty ones and the good ones. There is no such thing as saints, and there's no such thing as devils. It is an anthropological reality in human behavior. And therefore, it is up to society, governments, and non-governmental institutions to tackle, to address issues on the basis of a common concept, common appreciation of the dignity and priority to the individual.
0: Exactly. And actually, that's a perfect segue into our next question, Uh because it's true that human rights are undoubtedly a universal element that everyone as humans are entitled to. Yet it is also true that, like you kind of mentioned, realities and needs look different across the world. And so what do you believe is the role of multilateralism within a context that is as intersectional, but also as universal as human rights?
1: Well, the... uh Multilateral relations, in the classic sense, envisage governments. But in the case of human rights, you have to add to that equation civil society. Now, since the late 90s, 1999 to be exact, the world of business has come into human rights. When Kofi Annan visited Davos and invited business to respect human rights, uh, environment, and labor And uh, as a result of that, the so-called Global Compact was set up. It still exists today. But business has continued to rely on profit-making. And therefore, in the equation of multilateral relations, the profit-taking priority of transnational business especially has not yet reconciled itself with the needs presented by respect of international human rights law. In other words, the priority is no, not yet the welfare of the individual as envisaged in the Declaration and the Basic Treaties, mm-hmm. but rather how much money you can make for your shareholders. It's an ongoing process. We are still, I think, in a very early stage of it. Hopefully it might accelerate. But for us to be accurate when we speak of multilateralism, we need to no longer just focus on what governments can do together. In any case, they cannot agree on everything because they are not identical. But in order for, the, for multilateralism to be truly universal, you need to have a focus of civil society, governments, and business agree to the established criteria for respecting human rights, i.e. the respect of the individual and therefore, I believe that multicultural, uh, multicultural activities, and they are in many ways, because you see, uh, for example, in the recent destruction in Australia, West Australia, of the uh, caves that dated from 4,000 to 6,000 years, uh, the reaction, especially of shareholders, was so strong that it made, in this case, the, the company involved take measures and indeed to stimulate the authorities, both state and federal, to take up such matters uh, with the seriousness that they were were supposed to give them. Hence, the heightening, the strengthening of the respect for, uh, in this case, the culture and the behaviour of the individual, in this case, the indigenous peoples of Western Australia. Mm-hmm. So multilater- multilateralism like most other things uh, is a concept that needs to be revisited in order to make sure that it is truly truly universal. Mm-hmm. I think we're getting there but uh, you know having done 33 years in the international civil service and then about another 20 after in this kind of work you learn to be patient you learn to be persistent and you learn to obtain lessons from your frustrations.
0: Mm. It's truly a learning process, and it is is just, we learn as we go.
1: Well, that's uh, uh, one of the feelings I had most when I was getting the book together. Mm. And when I had to reduce it by about uh, 25%, I wanted to make absolutely sure that uh, the result uh, reflected these priorities Well, that's why I keep on saying, I'm not a salesman, but I have to mention this book, because many people express many opinions about the Commission on Human Rights. Some negative, some more negative, and some almost positive. (laughs) But nobody really knows what they are talking about, frankly, unless and until they have not just this book, but basically this is where it is. A good start. Yes, (laughs) yes, because um, it's very easy to condemn states that have made such a mess of human rights. But that's a point that has been reached. After a process of deterioration, which would have gone back many years, you had a period when you had, for example, non-democratic institutions, especially in the region of the Americas, for example, and then you had the, the, uh, the Cold War. Everybody seems to have forgotten about Africa until the decolonization process started, And still today, Africa is suffering from a denial of economic, social, and cultural rights.
0: Yes. So, as we mark 100 years of multilateralism in Geneva, and almost 75 years since the creation of the Human Rights Commission, how do you see the evolution of multilateralism and the OHCHR from the post-war period to today i know that's a very long period but in your book you say that we can shape the future better if we know and understand the past and i think that's something that you've echoed as well in your previous answers so are there any particular moments themes or movements that you see as critical to remember or consider as we move on towards the future
1: well um indeed yes I have to be very clear when I say this. The Human Rights Council today, which was established in 2006, should be considered as a transitory body. It's not a permanent body as such, because when it was set up, the Assembly said that after five years of existence, the Council should review its status in order to make proposals about the way it should be established in the years that followed. Now, the reason for this was that uh, the original proposal had been to have a Human Rights Council as a a charter body and membership open to all states, like the Assembly. And that meant an amendment to the charter, and that meant a very difficult block in getting that done. So, the formula of 47 member states was agreed to in 2006, And as I just mentioned, on the understanding that within five years, the membership would review that. The membership did that in 2011, but they decided not to change anything uh, and to come back to that issue as of 2021, basically 10 or 15 years, between 10 and 15 years. So as of next year, and I suppose negotiations must have started as of next year, Uh, the council has to revisit itself to decide on what it wants to be. The book makes proposals on that. I won't tell you what they are, because uh, otherwise I'll be giving away the top secret. (laughs) I'm I'm kidding you, but still.
0: You have to read the book to find out. That's
1: right, especially the last chapter. (laughs) Uh, The the thing is that because of the existing risk of creating a status quo, a, a, a fixed council as it is now with the UPR and so on, you actually would not really have achieved the original purpose in replacing the commission with a council. Council at the moment is a general assembly body. It has great advantages. It has done as much work, good work as it could. But it has this vital deficiency, if you like, in reaching the original proposal for this new Human Rights Council body. That is found, for example, in the report on threats and challenges to the UN, which was mandated by Secretary General Kofi Annan uh, to a group of very eminent statespeople from all over the world. And they very explicitly said, if we want the Commission to live up to its original purposes, you need now to change it into a body that has all states on it. And this is very important. I don't know whether I should say this now, but I'm going to. Recently, there was the election of new members on the council. And you read in the papers about some countries being elected to the the council, others not. The good ones, some of the good ones, uh, in inverted commas, were, were not brought in. Some of the naughty ones were brought in. The limited number of states as members of the council is in fact, in my opinion, and I think that is shared by a great number of people, counterproductive, because if you have states who are so-called naughty or nasty or violating human rights, they should be held accountable. And for them to be held accountable, they should be sitting at the desk in the council so that they can answer the allegations of others, maybe defend themselves, but in any case, the council cannot Realize its mission of implementing human rights standards unless it has everybody around the table. You can't exclude it. Of course, I believe very much that you had better be inside to slug it out than to do so from the outside. And so that is obviously one of the main aspects that the current formation of the Council of 47 Member States needs to be revisited very seriously. Unfortunately, there is still a degree of confrontation in the Council, which existed also in the Commission from time to time anyway, uh, which prevents this happening yet. But if we are going to have a human rights agenda that really respects the protection of the individual, you have to have everybody involved.
0: I mean, that's, that's the true spirit of multilateralism. If we do not have everyone at the table... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, It's
1: what us bureaucrats used to call universality. And that's found also in the Vienna Declaration, which, as I said earlier, was actually developed in Bangkok in the regional meeting leading to the World Conference.
0: Right. Well, our conversation, it feels like we've only spoken for five minutes, but it flew by so much. I learned so much. So I guess to kind of now close off our conversation... Um, are there any final thoughts before we close? Or I know that we dove into many different layers within the umbrella of the Human Rights Commission and the UN and also your work and your experience, but if you would like our listeners to take one thing from our conversation today, I know that's a bit difficult, but one thing, what would that be?
1: The individual. The focus at all times must be on the status of the individual in terms of freedoms, of uh, physical freedoms, Freedom to circulate, to move, freedom to, to to have a right to health, to to, to be uh, not the victims of torture or disappearances. The the individual must at all times be number one on the uh, priority list of the of of human rights. No other. Point blank. That's right.
0: Thank you so much. John, for joining us today and just sharing about your experience and your knowledge and also for sharing us sharing with us more on your amazing new book that has, again, been recently published. We are working on getting it acquired for our own library here at the UN Geneva, and we will definitely keep all of your links on our notes below so our listeners can reach them and reach you.
1: Thank you, Karen. I, I just want to say what a pleasure it is for me to be in your beautiful, beautiful library building. Uh, I think that um, both architecturally and as being the soul of the United Nations system, the international system, you can never have something like this. It is physically beautiful and more than anything else, the substance in it is simply unparalleled. So I'm very happy that you made it possible for me to be here today. Thank Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.